Well, today we are in Psalm 5, and so I want to encourage you, if you have a Bible, you can follow along on the screens on my air Bibles behind me, or you can follow along on the digital or on a printed analog version of whatever you've got as we dive into Psalm 5 together. And we're going to look at the prayer life of the psalmist David, who was declared to be a man after God's own heart, right? And so we're going to look at what David discovered and knew about God that made him a man after God's heart, but ultimately led him to cry out to God in this psalm of lament as he was in angst and anxiety over a situation that was happening in his life at that moment as he penned these words in Psalm chapter 5. And what he knew about God despite his own personal challenges and shortcomings. And I want to begin as we talk about this idea of prayer and just state the obvious, right? Prayer is hard, right? Prayer is challenging. I mean, you can tell by the fact when we call for a prayer meeting here at Valley Community Church, not many people come to pray, right? It's a challenge discipline, and we're not very good at it sometimes. And so I want to say just, you know, there's so many challenges in our world that keep us from praying. I mean, it's just the fast pace of life, the distractions of raising a family in this modern day world, electronic devices that are constantly pinging us and giving us notifications. It's hard to stay focused and hard to stay um, with this idea of just pursuing God with all of our heart and those in the discipline of prayer. And uh, I wanna know, I, just by, by stating right out the gate, I'm with you. How many identify that prayer is hard with you? All right. I am in good company here, all right? I know it's hard, and I also have great challenge with it because I am on the disc profile like a D. I'm a driver, I'm a doer. I just want to get things done, right? And so I just kind of charge ahead rather than kind of pause and pray and ask God to kind of enter in and for his grace and favor. And I think I've got a little ADHD in my life. It's like, you know, my mind is constantly going like, oh, there's a squirrel over there, you know? And so I just constantly get distracted in my devotion, in my prayers with the Lord. And I learned this really early on when I was on a short-term missions trip to the former Soviet Union, and we need to be praying for Russia right now as what's happening in the headlines. But I was going as a missionary, as a college student back during the days of communism, and we were in New York City, and they asked me to spend like 30 minutes just in solitude and silence with the Lord, kind of, kind of taking Psalm 4610 to heart, be still and know that I am God. And I failed like minute one in that, that, that exercise. Like I could not sit still. I wanted to do multiple things. My mind was constantly going. And it's hard to really have this idea of devotion and prayer to the Lord. I want to just recognize that right out the gate. Prayer is hard. It's challenging. But there's a reason why prayer is so hard. That's because it's one of the most igniting disciplines in our spiritual life that unleashes the power of God in our lives. So the enemy will do everything to distract us, to basically divert us, or to discourage us from praying because when we pray, especially when we pray on our knees, God does something through our prayers. Can I hear an amen to that? And that is actually what's happening as David uh, pins this psalm that there's a major distraction, there's a major discouragement that's happening in his life as he is in the wilderness and Absalom's forces are seeking to destroy him and basically usurp the throne from David. Now, who is Absalom, you ask? Great question, everyone. Absalom is the 
third son of King David. So his son is trying to revolt against his dad and to usurp his authority and take over the, as the reigning king of Israel. This is the context of what is happening in this passage of Scripture. And he is feeling so threatened, David's feeling so threatened by his son and his conspirators that he basically pens this in 2 Samuel 15, 14. He doesn't pen it, but this is what he says. Arise and let us flee, or else there will be no escape from us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly and bring uh, ruin on us, and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And so this is the context in which David is pinning these words in Psalm 5 that we're going to look at here in a minute, that his, only, his son is seeking to destroy and basically has created a coup to take over the throne of Israel. And so David calls out to the one who is truly able to come to his aid, and he writes these words in Psalm 5. Let's read it together. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The Boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord arbors the bloodthirsty and the deceitful man. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me, for there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear the guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of your transgressions, or their transgressions, cast them out. For they have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you, let them ever sing for joy. And spread your protection over them that those who love your name may exalt in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. Amen. 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 And so this is what has happened. This is his prayerful response back to God recorded in this Psalm 5. And I want to begin by just looking at five marks of David's prayer as we look at this text. I got a lot of ground to cover, a lot of bullet points uh, if you're taking notes today, but a lot of ground because I want to just give you the context of what, uh, what David modeled in prayer, but also what he knew about God in order to approach God with confidence. And so the first thing we see as a mark of David's prayer is that it was direct. Verse 1, it says, Give ear to my words, O Lord. David was directing his prayer to Yahweh and acknowledging God for who he was in this situation, that he was the Lord of all, that he was the sovereign one, that he was in control of all things. David knew who he was praying to, and he knew what he had the ability to do in this situation. 
but there's also a relationship here. It wasn't just crying out to the God of Israel. He was crying out to the, his God, which we'll talk about here in a moment. But his prayer was direct and bold, and it tells us a lot about his relationship with Yahweh. It's like walking into a room and saying, hey, give me what I have to say, Lord, right now. Like, I need your attention in this moment. It's bold, it's confident, because he knew who God was and that he was the sovereign one over the heavens and the earth. There's so many things, that, so many names about God that we can address him as, as Abba, as Daddy, as Father, as Lord. We can pray to Jesus, we can pray to the Holy Spirit, right? But he acknowledges in this prayer and out of his desperation that he is the Lord, the sovereign one over the universe, that he is Yahweh. And so he comes to God directly in petition of the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. The second thing we see about his prayer is that it was vulnerable. It was vulnerable. It says, consider my groaning. How many of you groan while you pray? right? Not a lot of groaners out there as we pray. Like that would be a little weird, especially in a prayer meeting, right? But uh, really the idea is this Hebrew word describes a low volume murmur. I have some friends, he's a pastor down in San Luis Obispo, and they're in Israel right now, and I'm, I'm watching their stories on Instagram and, and all the things that they're encountering there as they do a tour of the Holy Land. And, and one of the highlights for them was going to the Wailing Wall. And if you've ever been to the Wailing Wall, you see really what happens in the prayers of the Jewish nation, of, of those who uh, basically worship God, but not in the complete sense as we worship him today, right? And so from that perspective, they have this idea that there's this groaning that takes place in their prayers at the Wailing Wall. And I saw a video of it just this last week. They're, they're basically kind of moving back and forward like this, and they're just groaning in their prayers to Yahweh. And that's kind of what's happened here with David. He's groaning and he's petitioning God and he's saying, give attention to the sound of my cry. This is a cry of desperation. His son is after the throne. His beloved that he gave, you know, basically brought into the world is now seeking to revolt against his authority and his kingship. And I'm not sure if it's the emotional pain or the physical pain that would be most troublesome in this situation, but there's a strain in the relationship there, and that grieves his heart. And so he's vulnerable in his prayer to God, and he asks God to do something in light of his groans and of his cries, which we're going to see here. But ultimately, he's vulnerable. Next, we see that... Uh, David is humble in his prayers as well. Notice the pronouns in this passage here in verse 2. It says, my king and my God. This again wasn't just the king of Israel. This was David's king. This was David's God. He had a personal relationship with him. And he acknowledged that God was over not only the nation of Israel, but over his life. And he expresses dependence on Yahweh as his king and his God. This is the king of Israel, acknowledging that although he had all authority over the nation of Israel, that he could not do it apart from Yahweh. 
There's a humbleness and this dependence upon him, right, that he expresses that I can't do this. I need my king and my God, my sovereign one, to reign over this situation. Number four is we see another mark of David's prayer is that it was prioritized. It was prioritized. Verse three, in the morning, I will look forward to spending time with you as soon, the idea carries this idea, as soon as it is morning or every morning, I look forward to spending time with Yahweh. I anticipate this time. It's a priority in David's life. This wasn't just a prayer of just distress that we often do in our own lives. Like, God, I need you in this moment. And then, like, when everything turns out okay, we just kind of disengage until the next crisis in our lives, right? No, this was a pattern in David's life that he pursued God in the morning. Now, I'm not saying that we need to have our devotions in the morning, although there's a expectancy that comes when we pray in the morning. That as we go throughout our day, we believe God's going to do something, right? But this idea is that we pray in the morning, but we prioritize prayer. The idea is we prioritize prayer. And what happens when you prioritize prayer? Well, this is what happens when you prioritize prayer. You see, this is my family camping last summer at Plumas Eureka State Park. I counted 49 of us in that picture. And we're gonna go camping again this summer. It's a tradition we do every year. And I'll be gone in two weekends to go camping uh, with the family. But I wanna say something about this because this is the priority of prayer. Every single person in that photo knows and loves Jesus or is being raised in the church to know and love Jesus. Yeah, come on somebody, let's go. And why is that? Because my mother-in-law prioritized prayer in her life. She is a prayer warrior. And every day in the morning, She'll wake up about 5, 5.30 in the morning and prioritize prayer to pray for every single member of the family. And so of her 16 grandchildren, 15 are walking with Jesus right now. 16 know Jesus, but one's choosing not to walk with him right now. And her 23 great-grandchildren are being raised to follow Jesus as well. When we prioritize prayer, God does something to unleash his power through us. Lastly, we see that David's prayer was expectant. It says, I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. There's this expectancy that as I come to you in the morning, I, we're gonna look and see where the fingerprints of God are in my life and how he's shown up, and I expect, God, that you're gonna do something amazing in my midst. There's an expectancy in his prayers because God honors faith, and Dave is, David is offering up a prayer in faith. It says in Romans 10, 17, that faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not yet seen. And so he had this conviction, I don't see it, God, but I am going to believe you for it. And that prayer expresses that that idea that I expect, God, that you are going to do something in my midst. 
I just think really quick about our Compassion International project. And as we began to roll this out, you know, we are believing God to, to supply $100,000 in one weekend for an offering to basically start the Compassion Center and also to get Hope International through the doors. And we wanted to believe God to actually sponsor 150 kids as well. A big undertaking for, for Valley Community Church. And some doubted that we could do it. And I said, you know what? We can't do it, but God can. Amen. Amen? And God did, and God showed up, and through his people, he provided. And we got $101,000, and we got 150 kids sponsored through compassion. Because we had an expectancy, we had a faith to believe that God would supply the needs of his people. Come on, somebody. There you go, Bill. But if we expect God to answer our prayers, we need to know something about this God to whom we pray. And that's basically what David uh, knew about God. He knew something about his character in order for him to come to him in this prayer, in this lament. But before we get there real quick, um, we need to know who, to whom we are praying. Much like a father comes or a child comes to his father to ask of his father of something, he knows something about his father before he approaches his father for his need, right? He knows that his father will listen to him. He knows that his father will create a safe place for him. He knows that his father will be gracious to him, that he'll be dependable, and that he has the means and the ability to provide for what he's looking for, right? And so the same is true of David in this relationship with Yahweh that he had. He knew certain things about God in order to approach him. But what did David know know about God that gave him the confidence to approach him. Well, I'm glad you asked. And so there are six things about God's character that I see in this psalm that will help us to understand who God is. First of all, he is our God and our king. He is our God and our king. Notice the pronouns again. He is my God and my king. My king and my God. Clearly, there is a relationship there. But David recognizes that he is the sovereign one. He has the ability, the means, and the wherewithal to make it happen for what he is petitioning God for, that he is sovereign over all. Secondly, we see that David knew that God was dependable, that he was dependable. And I'm going to bullet through these really fast here. But and it says in verse 3, O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. He knew that God would show up and be there present. He knew that God would listen to him in the cries of his heart. As 1 Peter 3.12 says, uh, it's this way, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and, he hear, and his ears are open to their prayer. God's ears are open to our prayers. He's available to us. He's dependable. He will be there for us if we just spend time in conversation with him. 2 Corinthians 1.20 says it this way, for all the promises of God in him are yes, and in him, amen, to the glory of God through us. If God says it, he's going to do it. His promises are assured. His promises are good. He is faithful, God, faithful to his word. And if he says he will do it, he will. Therefore, we can trust him. He is dependable. Third is, he is holy. 
It says, for you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. To be holy literally means to be set apart. That, that God is set apart. That he is holy. That he is perfect. That he lacks nothing. There's more, nothing morally lacking in God's character. He is perfect. He is holy. And he always does what is right. Now, it may not seem right at the time, right? Anybody identify with that? Like, God, I think you got this wrong here. But he is holy and he's perfect and his ways are not our ways. And sometimes we just got to trust him despite what everything else is going on around us. Because he says that he will make all things work together for our good to those who love Christ and are called according to his purpose. And because he's perfect, we can approach him with confidence, knowing that he desires something greater than we have and think of for ourselves. Number four is that he is loving, loving. Verse seven says this, but I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. We just sang about this a little bit ago, right? In Psalm 118, the song we just did, that, that really there, that his love is abundant and it's steadfast. Think about those words and the meaning of those words, abundant and steadfast. Abundant, a large amount of something, plentifulness. His love is plentiful for us. It's steadfast, immovable, and basically this idea that it's fixed in place. Another way of saying this verse was, out of the exceeding plentifulness of God's immovable love, I will enter his house. Do we have a view of God's love as this idea of exceedingly plentiful and immovable? That he loves us, that he pursues us in that kind of way. And that gave David the confidence to enter into the house of the Lord, into his presence. I think about this idea and what conjures up in my mind is the days when I was growing up across the bay in San Mateo and I would get the privilege of going to visit my grandma. And I remember just getting in the car and getting excited. Grandma lived just a couple miles down the road. And then as soon as we parked in front of Grandma's house, I literally would bolt out that car and go running into the house because I just loved my grandma because she loved me. And she showed me unconditional love and grace. This is the idea that David is expressing in the psalm is because of God's abundant and steadfast love, we can enter into his presence with confidence knowing that he is for us and that we can trust him because his ways are higher than our ways and he has plans for us. He has plans for us. Number five is that he is our protector. He is our protector. Verse four, it says this, and spread your protection over them that those who love your name may exalt in you. You see, when we are in trouble or in need of strength, we have a protector who wants to provide a covering for us. He's a shield about us. He's our protector. And he is a strong guard. And the Lord spreads his protection over us and it leads to our singing for joy. And we're going to talk about that here in a minute. But whatever you're going through, God is a shield about you. He is your protector, and he's protecting you not only from the things of this world, but from the unseen things that are going on in the heavenlies as well. Lastly, this is that God is gracious and kind. 
God is gracious and kind. It says, verse 12, for you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. This idea here is that there's great blessing in the righteous as we pursue God, that he is kind and he is gracious. And then in times of trial or in sorrow, we just need to be reminded of his presence in those moments, that he is our ever-present help in times of trouble, as Psalm 46.1 tells us. And that he is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit, as Psalm 34 18 reminds us of. God promises his, basically his presence because he is gracious and kind. And deeper than any suffering is God's promise to be present. His tender presence is the greatest gift that he can give us. He's with us. He, his Holy Spirit lives and abides in us. And that is out of his kindness and his grace. Therefore, we can trust him. Now, I don't know if you've noticed the pattern here, but in every psalm of lament, there is a pattern. Uh, basically, it's kind of a poetic pattern. Uh, others can speak to this better than I can, um, especially the scholars in the room. But from that perspective, there is a pattern here. And it begins, this is a psalm of lament. In verses 1 through 3, this is David's lament because Absalom is trying to usurp the throne of Israel, trying to take his dad out and gain power. And he's revolting in this situation. So David cries out to the Lord, give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you do I pray. That was David's lament. That was his groaning. That was his cry. And as he cries out to the Lord, he begins to certainly understand certain things about who God is in that moment. That he is king, that he is God, that he is dependable, that he's holy, that he's loving, that he's our protector, and that he's gracious and kind. So in his psalm of lament, he begins to understand and remember who God is and then comes to this point of resolution and resolve when he says in verses 11 and 12, but let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them that those who love your name may exalt in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. We come to God in our lament, in our trouble, in our situation, whether it's good, bad, or ugly, right? As we come to him and we cry to him, he ultimately helps us and reminds us of who he is, that he is holy, and that he is loving, and that he is kind, and that he is gracious. And as we take refuge in him, he is quick to catch the size of our heart. He is willing to listen to the silent sighs and groans of the heavy mantle of leadership that you carry at your job or as a parent. Or in the difficulty or trial that you're experiencing, he hears the sighs and the groans of your heart, of your loneliness, of your exhaustion, of the grief that's choking you that goes unnoticed 
by others. He hears. And he invites us to come. He invites us to take refuge in him. And as we take refuge in him, we begin to remember and we're reminded in our conversation that he is a good, good father. That he is our God and our king. That he is dependable, that he is holy, that he is loving, that he's our protector, that he is gracious and kind. And the result is this, that we will rejoice and sing for joy. We come to a point of resolve. We begin to understand who God is, and he leads us to a a position of joy. Maybe not immediate, in the moment, like, I am so joyful right now, but joy in the outcome of what God's doing in that situation. He leads us to a space of joy. God will spread a covering over the righteous so that they will rejoice. When we turn to God for protection, we will find joy. When we turn to God for help, we will find gladness. When we turn to God for support, we will find rejoicing. This is the promise of this psalm, that as we seek the Lord with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, with all of our strength, that he will be there, the ever-present one, to help us in our time of need. It says in verse 12 that there is great spiritual blessings that come when we approach the Lord. In verse 12 it says, For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. You want to know what the solution is to all of the dilemmas and problems in our world? It's to seek him. It's to find refuge in him. To let him be our protector, to let him be our director, to seek him, as I said earlier, with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, with all of our strength. Then all these things will be added unto you. As we seek him, we come to a point of rejoicing. And we come to him not as we, as we are, we come to him as we are, not as we should be. Because sometimes we think we've got to clean up our act in order to come to God first and foremost, Right? But we just come as we are. He invites us to come as we are. And as we do, then we see who he is, and then he leads us to a place of joy. Joy unspeakable. Do we need a little more joy in our lives today, people? Yeah. This is the solution. As we seek him, as we cry out to him, he leads us to a place of rejoicing in him the sovereign one, the Lord of all. You see, David had a confidence to approach God, to give God direction like, okay, Lord, hear the cries of my heart right now because he knew certain things about God. He knew that God was, first of all, the God of the heavens and the earth, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, that he was dependable, that he was holy and perfect, that he was loving, that he was a protector, and that he was gracious and kind. And so he pursued God with all of his heart, with all of his soul, with all of his mind. I think about this great hymn of the faith, and you all know it and probably could sing it right now, a cappella, and it would be a beautiful thing. But it's the idea of, of turn your eyes upon Jesus. You see, when we turn our eyes upon Jesus and look into the fullness of his face, It says, the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. 
as we fix our gaze heavenward, we see God for who he is, that he's loving, that he's holy, that he's perfect. And we begin to see our circumstances, this world through the gaze and the lens of a God, eternal God, who sees the big picture because he's eternal and we're finite. And the things of this world will go strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. So no matter what you're facing, he invites you just to lift your eyes. The author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, suffered the shame, and sat at the right hand of the throne of God so that we could have the hope of spending eternity with him, that we could cast our cares on him because he cares for us. Let's pray. Father God, you are a good, good father. God, that you love us, that you listen to us, the cries of our heart, how we stumble and fall so often, Lord, but you love us in spite of ourselves. And that you have plans for us, God, that are immeasurably more than we could ask or imagine, and yet we think we ought to do it better ourselves. And so, Lord, we just confess that to you today, that we can't. We can't. We need you, God. So hear the cries and groans of our heart as we acknowledge you for who you are and for what you've done. Help us, Lord, to live a life that's honoring and pleasing to you, we ask. In Jesus' name, and God's people said, amen. Amen.